Uh, we are jumping into a new series. Uh, it's called <clears throat> You Lost Me at Leviticus. You Lost Me at Leviticus. I, I think no other book, no other book has ruined New Year's resolutions more than Leviticus. Genesis, you go into the new year, I'm going to read the Bible all the way through this year. I'm going to start from the beginning, and I'm going to get to the end, and I'm going to absorb it all, and it's going to be incredible. And you get the Genesis, and you got creation, fall, flood, yeah, got that, that stuff's cool. Then you got Exodus, Moses, let my people go, parting the Red Sea, you know, army gets destroyed, going up on Mount Sinai, all is all good and well. Then you get the Leviticus. Like snores, right? Like it's so tough. It's so hard to get. I'm not going to lie, and maybe you can relate to me, maybe you can't. Uh, there was a time when I was in college that I would actually read Leviticus and Deuteronomy at night in my bed so that I could help myself to fall asleep. I'm, not, I'm just saying, I figured if God's word did not return void, as it says, then, then a helpful byproduct of reading God's word could help me to pass out of sleep, and I was okay with that. Uh, I know none of you have ever done that. That's okay. It might. It's probably just me, but I've been excited for this series for for quite a while, because frankly, it's not something that we normally talk about at church. Uh, I've discovered the last several weeks that, that I've never actually preached a message from Leviticus. I say, I say that probably to my shame. In, in 10 plus years of ministry, I've never taught on Leviticus, and I've never been at a church where it has been taught on. In fact, another person told me a few weeks ago that they were excited for the series as well because in all their time in church, and they went to different churches, and they were in different ministries, and they, they also have never heard a sermon on Leviticus. And so uh, maybe that's many of you here today as well. Maybe you've never heard a message on Leviticus also. And so this might be kind of new for all of us. Maybe you've never even read the book of Leviticus. Maybe you've never even, you know, gotten into it. And so this will, this will hopefully be new for all of us. But I think that churches as a whole tend to stay away from Leviticus because it's the law, right? Levit that's what Leviticus is. It's, it's, it's law. It's God's law, and we're under grace, right? And while that is true, all right, that is true, we are no longer under Levitical law or under the Mosaic covenant, but we are now under the new covenant, which was foretold by the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah and then fulfilled by Jesus when he came and he died on our behalf. So we're under this new covenant So that, that, that's, that's obviously true, but I don't know about you, and I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that, that Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses and established a new covenant between God and man. Uh, the, the, that fact alone is enough to just, like, get me excited, and I want to just talk about that the rest of the time this morning. I would, know, I would have no problem proclaiming the beauty of Christ's sacrificial atonement. In fact, we will spend some time talking about that in, in just a few moments. However, in light of all of that, it should lead us to ask a big question. If, if, if we're not under this law anymore, then why is the book of Leviticus in the Bible? If the law is obsolete, then why have the book of Leviticus, which contains 247 laws that the Jewish people had to follow? I think the answer is, is actually more simple than we, than we realize. This book is, is not at all obsolete. It's, it's meaningful. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture, all scripture, every book, including Leviticus, including Deuteronomy, including all the law books, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I think the problem is uh, then that the, the church, it's, the problem then is, the, is not the text, it's the church and it's our understanding of the text. 
right? It's not the inerrant, infallible words of God. The problem lies in our understanding of how they apply to us. That's what we hope to address over the course of this series. Obviously, we're not going to be able to shed light on everything that these 27 chapters have to offer and and four, like, 35-minute messages that will be delivered over the course of the series. So, during this month, here's my challenge to you. During this month, my challenge to all of you is to actually read the book of Leviticus. I'm not necessarily going to be walking through it like we did with 1 Peter. If you were here over summer, we walked through the book of 1 Peter verse by verse. We broke it down and talked about it over, I don't know, like 12, 13, 14 weeks or so. Um, But here's what I would encourage you. Start at the beginning and make your way through the book of Leviticus. Let me give you some advice. Don't do it at night when laying in bed. I can, I can vouch that that's not a great idea, but let me challenge you to take, take it a step further. All right, it's not just about reading. It's not just about completing this task that I just gave you. It's not about that. Let me, take, let me ask you to take it a step further. Read this book with an expectation for the Holy Spirit to speak into your life through the text. All right? Have an expectation that God is going to speak to you. I promise that if we do that with Leviticus... If we do that with Philippians, if we, if we do that with Genesis and we do that with Revelations, if we, if we approach the scriptures with a holy expectation for the word of God to impact us, to alter us, to sanctify us, to change us, then I, I'm going to make a promise to you, I believe it will. How do I have that confidence? I truly believe what God says through Isaiah and Isaiah 55. So shall my word, it's God's word, the, the scriptures, the holy word of God, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's our Bible. It's our scriptures. That's the word uh, of God that gives hope and gives life. It may not always feel like it in the moment. Believe me, I have finished reading so many times and thought, okay, I guess that's it only to have God use that story, that passage, that verse later in my life, only to have the living word of God be planted in me, take root in me, and then bloom only when it needs to, when God wants it to. So friendly challenge over the next month, read all 27 chapters of Leviticus, really lean into the series as we ask you to do with every series as they come up, and really just uh, go for it. All right, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus Chapter 1, if you don't have your Bibles, I think there's going to be some text on the screen behind me as we jump into this in a few moments. Uh, The title of the message this morning is A Pleasing Aroma. Yeah, that sounds weird. I think that's appropriate for the book of Leviticus. Honestly, if you dive into it, once you get in there and start reading some of the laws and some of the things, like, I mean, this this is just, this is mild, a pleasing aroma. That sounds weird, but that's, that's mild compared to the things that you'll see in this particular book. And that, that title is also going to make a little sense, sense a little bit, little bit later in the, uh, the message here. Now, I want to paint a picture for you, give you a little backdrop as we jump into this. Maybe you haven't read much of the Old Testament. Maybe you need a refresher. Uh, but, but to be able to, um, to fully understand why some of these laws exist, why some of these commandments were given, uh, we have to try to grasp the culture. All right, We have to look at the cultural context and literary context. Do, do I think, let me say this, do I think that God can speak through his word alone without you knowing the who, what, when, where, and why behind the passage? Absolutely. It's, it's the living word of God. It can absolutely speak. 
without any of those things. However, it sure helps when we start hitting passages that talk about blood sacrifices, burnt offerings, not shaving the corners of your beard. I've got that one down. And only eating animals, I love this one, that chew cud and have uh, split hooves. That's the only thing you could eat. That's the only thing that you were allowed to eat in the book of Leviticus. And the animal had to have those two characteristics. So it sure helps whenever you have these passages. Listen, from our, 20, when our, from our 21st century perspectives, th- these things come off very strange unless we attempt to understand what's going on at the time and why God is asking his people to do these specific things. For example, cultural context. Leviticus 19.19 uh, 19 states that we must not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. All right? So, so it's 100%. Your tag has to say 100% whatever. It can't say 50-50. It can't say 40-60. It's got to be 100. It can't be two types of material. This, is, this probably hits us as odd. Why does God care what his followers are wearing? Why does it matter? But there's a very plausible rationale if we knew some of the things, uh, some of, the, some of the, the thoughts behind this, some of the things that led up to this. If we knew that priestly garments were made from mixed materials, right, like wool, wool yarn as well as Linen, we're told back in Exodus, that's kind of how they did it. Since non-priestly Israelites were forbidden from doing the priestly duties, we learn this from the book of Numbers, it's all about context, then this prohibition may have been to prevent Israelites from even heading in that direction. In other words, the goal was to make sure the Israelites show proper respect to the authority structures that the Lord had put in place. So once we get to this point, application becomes fairly natural. In this case, we recognize on the one hand that the New Testament no longer uh, distinguishes the church's leaders by special clothing, meaning Christians can wear mixed fabrics today. Even, you know, skinny jeans and a, and a t-shirt are fine. Well, not in all churches, but here. On the other hand, the New Testament teaches that church leaders have a unique role and, and exhorts Christians to respect that role by submitting to, uh, to those that are in it. It tells us that in 1 Thessalonians and Hebrews and other places. That's just one example of how the cultural context can actually lead us to understanding why God made a specific law for a specific reason. Also, in terms of literary context, it's crucial to remember that Leviticus is part of a much larger story, especially the one told in Exodus. Really, it's a continuation of Exodus. You could actually tell the story more like this. In Exodus, the Lord delivers his people from slavery with mighty signs and wonders. That was at the beginning of Exodus, if you remember that story. And then he brings in the Sinai, and then he tells them uh, that they're going to be his kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He confirms their kingdom status by entering into a covenant with them as their king and giving them the kingdom laws to follow. But that's not all. He's going to be a king who is near to them, dwelling in their very presence. And this is why he proceeds to give them the directions for the tabernacle, his earthly palace. We see throughout the last part of Exodus up to Exodus 40, which is how we finish out that book. And that leads directly into Leviticus. So all this leads to a very uh, burning question if you're an Israelite. How in the world can a holy and pure king of the universe dwell among sinful and impure people? How is that even possible? How can he live here in our very midst without his holiness, like literally melting our faces whenever we step outside? Answer, Leviticus. It begins by explaining the sacrifices that address sin and enables them to worship this king as he should be worshipped. 
Leviticus provides them with priests to intercede on their behalf and leads them in worship before the king. Leviticus gives them laws to teach them how to deal properly with impurity. Leviticus provides a a yearly ceremony to remove every last ounce of sin and impurity from their kingdom. Leviticus provides a whole series of laws in other areas to direct them uh, in living like a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which is what God has called them to be. I don't think I'm alone on this, but I used to look at Leviticus as kind of like a burden, if I'm being honest. Whereas the Israelites look at it as a life preserver. It was the very thing that taught them how to live in a relationship with this king who had just entered into a covenant with them and descended into their very midst. All right, one last thing before we dive in and start talking about Leviticus. In terms of law, I I want us all to understand where the law happens in this story. All right, because we can get into a whole debate on law and grace, but I'd rather not because I want you to understand where law happens in in the context of the story. It doesn't come before redemption. It comes after, okay? The law that begins in Exodus 20 and extends through Leviticus is not given to the Israelites that they might be saved. Rather, it's a gift from their redeeming Lord given to guide them in living as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Most people look at the law, and, and we can, we can contextualize, uh, we can contextualize uh, in this for, for us and for our purposes and say, like, good works, good deeds, right? Like, we don't, we, don't, we don't quite understand and grasp the law as much, but we do understand good works. We understand uh, good deeds. We understand, uh, if you come from a Catholic background, the sacraments. All right, this is what some factions of the Christian church argue over, grace versus works. So most people look at the law that works, and they see it as an if-then statement, right? Do you ever learn if-then statements in, in school? All right, it's an if-then statement. If you keep the law, then I will save you. That's kind of how we look at God, and that's how we look at works. That's how we look at the law. But that's actually quite the opposite. Obedience flows from grace. It doesn't buy it. The exodus precedes Mount Sinai. The exodus happened first. They were delivered first. Then we come to the law. Redemption precedes the the law. And the law was given to those who have been saved by grace in order to show them how to live in that grace. Church, understand that, that Sinai does not bring fresh bondage, but rather proof that the old bondage had been broken. That's what we get when we look at this. All right, we need to get to the text for today. And today we're going to begin where the book of Leviticus begins, sacrifices and offerings. Over the first five chapters, the people of Israel uh, were given five different types of offerings. Remember, Leviticus chapter 1 is right on the hills of Exodus 40. So no no sooner had the Holy of Holies, the, the place that was to house the Spirit of God, no sooner had that been completed and the glory cloud of God descended on that place, did God begin declaring these offerings because he wanted to be in community with his people. But there were some things that had to happen because God is perfect and we are not. So there, there were five different types of offering we read in the first five chapters. There were burnt offerings in chapter 1. There are grain offerings in chapter 2. There's peace offerings in 3, sin offerings in 4, and guilt offerings in 5. And then in 6, 7, and 8, they go back and they kind of have some priestly duties uh, and addendums kind of attached to those, those first five offerings. We're going to read the word, but let me pray over this one more time. God, I pray that as we open your word, as we, as we open up this book of the law, 
God, I pray that we will look beyond even what the text says. And Holy Spirit, that you will, that you will refresh us and renew us, that you will teach us something that we couldn't see here on our own. Pray that this will be beneficial for our sanctification, that we will grow closer and closer to you and more and more like you through what we're going to talk about here this morning. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, the first offering type is a burnt offering. It's found in Leviticus chapter 1. And, uh, and so we're going to go ahead and read. the. F- we're going to start in verse 3. Uh, if, his, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, let me actually pause. Do you, I don't know if you see that. Probably not because I just got going. You have no idea what you're looking for. Uh, but but there's, a, there's a word there that strikes me as interesting. At the very beginning of that verse, it says, if his offering. If his offering. This is very impo- I think it's a very important word because this offering, this offering, when it says if, that kind of leads me to believe that it's voluntary. So while the offerings were essential to their worship, only two of them were actually compulsory. Only two of them were actually, like, demanded. And that's the sin and the guilt offering, which, which come a little bit later. The first three, the burnt offering, the peace offering, and the grain honor offering, those were all voluntary. But if you were to bring one, if you were to come and bring it, you've got to bring this offering from your herd. You've got to bring a bull from your herd. It has to be a male, and it has to be without blemish. So, so, be, so bring a bull. Do you see that in, in verse 3? Here we go. Watch this. Uh, in his, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. That's why they brought the sacrifice. It was to be accepted by God. The burnt offering was really one of the ways that they could secure divine favor, that, that God would look upon them with favor and he would smile uh, upon their offering that they were bringing. And that's, that's what they were going for. That's what they were shooting for. That's the goal. And so they bring this offering before the Lord. And then the, then the guy who brings it, all right, in verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. I want to do a really cool illustration where I brought in like a live bull and I put my hand on it. But then I thought that would be a bad idea for so many reasons. Um, did, you catch, did you catch that? The guy who would bring a bull in, the person who's bringing the sacrifice, they would lay their hand on the head of this bull. And you know what happens when they do that? They transfer the guilt of their shame and their sin to the animal. That God would see that and he would recognize that. And that bull, it would be an atonement for you. I always want to be sure to define words for you well. Atonement simply means covering. All right, it simply means covering. So, so they were looking to have their sins covered by a, a blood and burnt offering from this animal. Now, this all happened before killing the bull. So they're transferring their sin and their shame to this animal's to this animal, and, and, and your hand is on the head of the bull. You're transferring all that. God sees that. He accepts that. It's now substitute. And then verse 5 says that this person who brought the bull, he shall kill it. Where? Before the Lord. Notice who the offering's to. It's not to the priest. Amen? It's to the Lord. Even in this culture where there were priests and there were high priests, they weren't offering and worshiping a person. They were offering and worshiping before the Lord. Let me segue for a moment into something that I think we can understand in church culture because I know I have never made a burnt offering to the Lord of my finest bull. Maybe you have. 
I'd like to watch that. Eh, maybe not. But I have given time, money, resources. I've given those to the Lord. And I hope that you understand that you're not giving, when, when you're giving, when you're making those offerings to the Lord, they were giving to God, not the priest. You're giving to God, not, not a pastor. You're giving to God, not a staff. All right, these things are these things are coming in these are coming into the house for the Lord. What we give now, we give for the glory of God, for the advancement of his kingdom. Now I believe he trusts the staff and the elders to steward those funds and to use them for his glory in Greenwood and beyond. But but let me use this passage to challenge how we think about offerings for a second. The Israelites brought an unblemished bull, undoubtedly one of the best they had, if not the best they had. I mean, you, you, if, you've, if you've been around animals at all, you know that finding a perfect, unblemished animal, is that's a, that's a tall order. Right? That's, a, that's a tough thing. That's not an easy feat. The Israelites brought an unblemished bull. The burnt offering, of all the offerings, I, I think the burnt offering is actually the most expensive. It's the most costly of all of them. Because they literally gave the entire animal. Right? The entire animal actually gets gets cut, gets slaughtered, gets put on the offering, gets burnt. The only thing that gets saved is, 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 the, is the hide, which gets given to the priest. But the entire thing is gone. And some of the other offerings, they, there's, there's, there's pieces that they remember. There's pieces that they use. There's, some of it becomes food, even. But the entire thing is gone. Their best animal, gone in an instant. So you see, they didn't give from overflow out of obedience. They gave the best they had from their heart. They made a choice to give. All right, they made a choice to honor God with their offering. I'm not telling you this because I want you to, to give more. It's not that kind of message. I'm telling you this because I want your heart. God wants your heart to be in the right place when you give, when you bring offerings. The truly beautiful thing is that what we give now does not give us atonement for our sins. We can't buy that. There's no amount of money or livestock that we can offer before the Lord that can ever afford the atonement that he provided by dying on the cross for us. Yet that atonement is free. It's the most valuable thing in the universe, but it's given to us for free. No offering needed, no burnt sacrifice. Come on, somebody, that's good news this morning. Verse 5, let me, let me just read this. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring uh, the blood and throw the blood. Notice, notice that word there. Uh, it's an intentional word of force, throw. There was nothing casual or lazy about this process. Everything was intentional. The animals killed. The blood was drained. They would take that, and they would throw it on the sides of the altar. It was, an intention, it was intentional and by design. So they would throw the blood against the sides of the altar uh, that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then they shall uh, flay the burnt offering and cut it to pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, uh, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Notice this is where the work of the priest kind of kicks in. All right, They take the blood and they start flaying the animal. Up to this point, it was the offerer that did all the work. So you brought the animal and you killed the animal. The priest kind of helped you, helped you get to the finish line. And in verse 8, Aaron's sons, uh, the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, the wood that is on the fire, uh, on the, that is on the fire on the altar. This, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. 
And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's where our title comes from, a pleasing aroma. Circle the word all. If you have your Bibles and you're, you're doing this, in verse 9, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar. Because this shows us something quite significant about the whole burnt offering that is not true about the other offerings. In this offering, as I said a moment ago, everything is burnt up. Everything. It was all given to God. And the Lord said it was a food offering with a pleasing aroma. Watch this, church. As odd as this may sound, here's what the text tells us. That, a, that, that when a worshiper, and that's, that's really what they're doing. I want you to, I want you to understand that, that what they're doing, this is an act of worship. Right? Like we can look at it as offering and sacrifice and we can call it whatever it is, but this is really their act of worship. They're coming into the house and they're doing this. Right? So, so it says that when a worshiper would bring a bull and kill it, its blood would make atonement and God would accept the person. And, and then they would wash out its entrails. They would clean all of the bile and all the things out of the entrails so that it would be clean and holy. And then they would burn it and then all that goes to God. And God's nostrils would do this. And God would smile and say, wow, that's pleasing. That's crazy, right? I mean, it sounds crazy. It sounds crazy when I say it out loud. It's a little crazy when I read it, but it's even more crazy when I say it out loud. But God loves worship, and that's what they're doing. They're worshiping. I bet we would have probably much less people here if that's what our worship gatherings look like every Sunday. Certainly the theater would kick us out. There's no question there. We may have some people that would be interested in that kind of thing and come hang out, but theater would, no, not here. But God loves worship. He loves sacrifice. He loves our offering. He loves when we give him everything. When we turn it all over to him, our, 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 our heart, our minds, our souls. Not just the physical, tangible things, but everything that we are. When we turn that over to him, he loves that. You see, they, they spread the blood of the animal around. They allowed it to cover the sides of the altar. They did this to indicate that the blood uh, had been taken, or more specifically, that, that death had occurred as a foreshadowing of the blood of Christ that would be spilled and the death on the cross that would be had for us. The sacrificial system was pointing to God's plan to save his people. The people of the Old Testament lived because another living thing died in their place. Do you understand that? They were able to live in community, in presence with God. They were able to live because another living thing had died in their place. We are able to live today because the living God came and he died in our place. Don't miss that. That's so important for us. Atonement was received through death and blood, and when all this was done correctly, it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I want the Lord to be pleased with what I offer him. Again, time, money, resources, whatever it is, do you have... Do you have somebody in your life, let me ask you this, do you have somebody in your life, there's Christmas stuff going up all over the place already, right? It's, I don't, they can't even talk about it. It's just every year, it gets earlier and earlier, and it's a thing, and now, now we're just, it's just going to be year-round. It just needs to just stay out. But here's the thing, Christmas stuff is going, is there anybody in your life that you hate buying Christmas gifts for? Think about that person. You hate buying, here's, here's why you hate buying Christmas gifts for. Every year you try and you try and then you feel like it falls flat. 
Like you give them the gift and they open it and their mouth says thank you, but their body language is like, okay, I know that's going in a closet and it's going to be regifted six months from now or it's going back to the store in a week, whatever. And you have such a hard time whenever that happens. When you have those kind of people, it's no fun at all to, to get them a gift. You dread it really. You go to the store begrudgingly. I think many of us give our gifts begrudgingly to the Lord. Right? We, we write checks begrudgingly. We dread serving. We reluctantly let go of our resources. Let me jump back to Exodus 35 for just a sec. It says this in, uh, in Exodus 35, verse 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is a, uh, of a generous, and, and other versions say willing, Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze. Listen, the tangible offering is not as much of a concern to God as the heart that is behind it. In Leviticus, they had rules. They had guidelines. It was very specific. It was mapped out for them. But we have Jesus. He's taken the place of the bull, the goat, the bird, the other things we're going to talk about. He's taken the place of all that stuff. He's the ultimate sacrifice. So now we offer God other things, not for atonement, but because he's a good father and he's worthy of it. And listen, when when I give God something, I want it to be a pleasing aroma for him. I want God to be pleased with my offering because I made it with a willing and grateful heart. I gave the best to him. I offered him the first fruits the unblemished bull. In verse 10, similar things happened. Uh, some other things kind of went down, but this time it was uh, something from the flock. So he kind of gives the first one, this is what you do. Uh, you, you bring from the herd, and, and then the, in verse 10 it says, actually, okay, but you can also bring from the flock, all right, so this is uh, sheep or goats, and then you're, gonna bring, you're still going to bring a male without blemish, similar to what you bring from the herd. And, of course, uh, similar to verses 3 through 9, similar to those verses, you should kill it on the north side of the altar, it says. It's the same identical procedure, pretty much, just not as much animal to work with. All right, you clean up the legs and so forth. You offer again in verse 13. I don't know if all that's happening behind me. I'm kind of speeding through it here, uh, looking, at, looking at the time. All of it. Again, this is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, it says. And then in verse 14, he begins to discuss the same kind of procedure, but with birds. Now, let me make a comment here. Because he, he kind of nicely divides, God kind of nicely divides things up here for us. Uh, three sections. Something from your herds. Something from your flock. And something from the birds. Why the difference? Why are you allowed to do different things? I mean, there, there's a big difference from a prize-winning bull and a parakeet. I don't think parakeets were allowed, but there, there's, there's a difference, right? There's a big, big difference. I think it's a clear-cut case of, of what you could do economically, what you had available was fine with God. What was not allowed was an exemption. All right, understand that. What was not allowed was an exemption. You could choose various items, but listen, church, you could not come empty-handed. This was before Jesus died on our behalf. That sacrifice was, was needed. It was, it was mandatory for our salvation. Does anyone else? I wonder if anyone else feels a, a conviction on this point other than me. 
God didn't say to them, oh, it's all right. You don't have anything, so you don't have to, to give. No, everybody had something. And so God, in his wisdom and in his sovereign love, he made a way for everyone to participate. That, that shows me something. In real worship, when we really give ourselves to God, involvement is essential. Somebody may say, well, I don't have much. Well, give what you can. Maybe you have heard of the poor widow in Luke chapter 21 who had two little mites, which basically equals a nickel. And it's far worse, watch this, it's far worse to say, well, I don't have much, so I won't give anything. I won't give any part of me. I won't give anything I have. I won't give anything that I am. It's far worse than saying, God, here is all I've got. I will give you all I have. It might not be much, but I'm giving what I can. Praise God for that. God here, he, he made an allowance for those who didn't have anything to give. He said, if you are on different levels economically, financially, if you're doing well, give a bull. Not quite as well, give a sheep or a goat. Even worse than that, if you're on tough times, give a bird. But by all means, give something. Listen, church, that shouldn't be discouraging. That should be encouraging. That means whatever we have to offer, when we give it willingly, when we give it willingly, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He made a way for the Israelites, and he makes a, that same allowance for us. But offering what we've been given back to the Lord has been a part of the plan from the very beginning, from the, from the very beginning as we see here in Leviticus. Listen, church, it's not really about giving. I, I just need to, I, I've already said that, but I really need to emphasize. It's not really as much about giving and what you give as much as it is about our heart posture. It's about our, our, our physical acts of worship, our, our internal and spiritual acts of worship. In Leviticus chapter 6, there's six, there's additional guidelines given for the burnt offering, and one of those says that the burnt offering should never go out. It's the priest's job to keep the fire going, the burnt offering going at all times. All right, that's one of their jobs in the temple, in the, in the, in the, in the tabernacles, to kind of keep that burnt offering going. Make sure it's always burning. The wood on the altar is always burning. So people could come in, bring their offerings, their burnt offerings, anytime they wanted to. It was a continual, never-ending, 24-7 offering. Imagine being in this camp, right, and facing the tabernacle and seeing the smoke rise 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What would you think? You're seeing it rise. Somebody's worshiping God. Somebody's worshiping God. An hour later, somebody's worshiping God. The next day, somebody's worshiping God. How incredible would that be to know that there is worship happening at all times? It's the way worship should be. Worship to a believer is a 24-7 lifestyle. Just like the burnt offering that never went out, our worship to God should never go out. Let me give you three quick things as we wrap up that I see about worship from this passage. Right now, I know uh, I, I talked a lot about giving, but it's, it's really about worship. So we're kind of coming back around. We talked about giving. We talked about offering the burnt sacrifices. But now let's, let's come all the way back around because what this is really about is our worship. So let me, give you, let me give you three quick things. Number one, worship never ceases. Like the fires on the altar in the tabernacle, they never went out. They never stop burning. Our worship should also never cease. We should always be seeking to serve God more, give God more, experience God more, listen to God more. Our worship should not stop because of our circumstances. 
Our worship should not quit because things around us are, are going awry. And on the other side, our worship should not quit because things around us are going well. We, we can go either way sometimes. The worship cannot stop because God is worthy to be worshiped all day, every day, in our hearts and in our lives. We need to give that at all times. Worship never ceases. Number two, worship is Christ-centered. How did I get that from this passage when Christ had not actually come to the earth and, and died for anybody at this point? Well, let me give you another word then. It's centered on a substitute. Now I want you to follow me on this. Listen very carefully because God is holy and we are not. Somebody has to step in. Did you hear what I just said? Because God is holy and you are not, there has to be a substitute. Somebody has to step in and take over. That's the point of a substitute. In the Levitical system, they brought bulls, sheep, goats, birds. But when Jesus came and stepped in for you and for me, he was the final substitute once and for all. And God looked on the sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, and he said, it is finished. God now declares forever righteous all those who believe in him. That's, that's the beauty of it. That's the power of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of his blood. You understand, sacrifices had to be made. To, for, for life to happen, there has to be death. That, that's, that's, that's the plight that we were in whenever sin entered the world. For us to be connected to a holy God, we have to atone for our sins, and the only way that can happen is through death and through the letting of blood. And so they, they did it. You have to understand that also the reason why the fires were always burning, the reason why uh, s- sacrifices were to be made all the time, the reason why there are four other sacrifices that we're not going to have time to get to this morning is because these sacrifices were only good for the things that had happened. They're going to the altar and they're saying, God, I messed up. Put the hand on the bull's head. I'm transferring the sin, the guilt and shame of my sin. I'm putting this on this animal, and this animal is going to die on my behalf so that I can have forgiveness. But the amazing thing is, is that through the blood of Jesus, the eternal sacrifice, the, the most amazing and powerful atonement of our God, Jesus Christ, because of that, We don't just have forgiveness for past sins. We have forgiveness for future sins. That blood covers all. We don't have to keep making sacrifices because the ultimate sacrifice has been made. That's the beauty of God's plan. Worship is Christ-centered. And number three, worship is costly. As I look at Leviticus 1 and I watch how they brought the best of their herd the best of their flock, the best of the birds, I'm struck with something quite intriguing, and it's also very convicting as well. There was no garage sale mentality in Israel. There is in the American church. Unequivocally, I'm going to say that. We gather all the stuff we have left over, and we say, hey, God, we got a bunch of stuff left over. What do you want out of that? We kind of post the garage sale sign in our life. We say, hey, God, come on by. 
I'm kind of done with, with, with this thing now. I'm done with what I wanted to do and all the things that I'm interested in. Here's what's left, God. Take your pick. You can have what's left over. It's like God is the guest at a restaurant, but he's waiting until we're finished, and then we give him the to-go box. God doesn't want our leftovers. He doesn't want what's left behind. He doesn't want the, the leftovers of our life. That's not, the, what is, that's not at all what it's supposed to look like. From the very beginning of this structured worship, God always asks for our best first. Because he gave us his son. He gave us Jesus Christ. And so he asked us to reciprocate. Give your best. Give your all. Give, give your heart. Give everything that you have. Lay it on the altar. Lay it on, uh, at the foot of the cross. Lay it on the line for me. And I'll take care of you. I've got you. So let me ask you a few questions as, as we're going to stand and worship in just a moment. Are you giving God your best or are you giving God your leftovers? Is he getting the prize bull or is he getting the runt of the herd? Because it doesn't matter, again, it doesn't matter if it's the bull or if it's the bird. If it's the best you have to offer and you're doing it with a willing heart, then that is an aroma that is pleasing to God. Let me, let's, let's, let's put it in terms that we understand as Americans. Let's put it in terms of money. It doesn't matter if it's $1,000 or if it's a quarter. If it's what we have, it's a pleasing aroma to God if we give that willing. It doesn't matter if it's 10 minutes or if it's two hours a day. If that's what we have and we're giving it willingly, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Are you only engaging him in, him in worship on Sunday mornings, or is it a 24-7 thing? We don't have time to get into what, our, what, what worshiping God with our lives looks like. In, in Leviticus, there were 247 laws that told you how to worship God with your life. It's not quite the same anymore. But worship is so much more than standing and singing a song. It's so much more. We call this worship. This is an act of worship. It's not worship. It's not just worship. It's so much more. And you can't have a Christ-centered, you can't have Christ-centered worship unless you know Jesus. So plain and simple, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you covered by the atoning blood of Jesus? If you're not sure the answer to those questions, then I'd love to pray with you in just a little bit. During this next song, I want to encourage you to respond. Really respond, not to me and to what I'm saying, please, not to me and to what I'm saying, but what God's saying and how the Holy Spirit is moving you in this moment. There's four ways you can do that over the next few moments. Let me tell you these real quick. Number one, I would love to pray with you. Maybe you feel God leading you into a relationship with him. Maybe, you, you, maybe you're, you're questioning your faith. Maybe you don't know where you are. I would love to pray over you. I would love to talk with you. I'm going to be in that, that ramp over there heading out, of the, heading out of the auditorium. I would love to meet you over there and talk with you a little bit. And there might be some other elders or, or people there as well. If you need prayer on something, don't, don't go out of here today wishing you had prayed with somebody, wishing you had talked to somebody. That opportunity is open. We're actually, I think we're doing a whole worship set. We got like, I don't know what time it is. Yeah, we got like three or four, so three songs coming up here. You've got time. Grab somebody and pray with them. If, if you don't want to pray with me, that's fine. 
pray with somebody beside you. Pray with somebody near you. Pray with somebody you know. Pray with the person you came with. All right, so first is, is prayer. Uh, second, a second point of response. We're not passing an offering basket today, uh, but an usher will be standing, uh, I think, right over by that light. Billy's over there with the offering basket. If you feel led to give today, I want to challenge you to be intentional and proactive and come and place your offering in the basket on the altar. We don't have an altar, but on the altar, as it were. I said everything about the way they did their burnt offering. It was all intentional. It was specific. It was all for a purpose. And so I want you to be intentional this morning. If Listen, if you give online or if you didn't come prepared to give, that's fine. But if you did come prepared to give, I want you to be intentional about it. Or if God's leading you or moving you to give, I want you to be intentional about it. So Billy's going to be down there. He's going to hold that probably for the first, like, song or two. And so you can make your way down there. Um, and, uh, and give. And then the, the third thing is communion. It's always available for you and your family. It's right there. Uh, we have like regular and I don't know, there's like gluten-free and some other options. Or, but, but hey, I want to encourage you. Take some time. We, again, three songs. We, we have an opportunity whenever we take communion to talk to God and to thank him for the atoning blood of Jesus. Thank him for what he did in our lives. Thank him for what he's continuing to do in our lives. And here's the fourth thing. We're going to stand and we're going to worship for these last 15, 20 minutes. I want to encourage you to bring your best worship this morning. Give God all that you have. Worship him in song and prayer. Lift your hands and praise him because he's worthy of it, guys. He's worthy of it, church. Let me pray over you, and then you can move and respond, and they're going to lead us in song. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the book of Leviticus. As we can jump into it, it's not, it's not as boring as sometimes we think it is. There is some truth there. There is some, there is some light there. there is, there's a lot of things that we can pull out of there. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you reveal those things to us. Thank you for your living word that we can contextualize, that we can draw conclusions, that we can pull from other And we can make, out of this, we can see part of your perfect plan. I pray for the people in this room that are they're going to respond in the next moments. Whether they respond and they come and, and ask for prayer. Maybe they don't know you and you're, you're leading them and you're pulling them and tugging them into a relationship with you here in this moment. I pray over those people, God, that you would give them boldness, you would give them courage, you would give them strength to step out and to ask for prayer. I pray over those who will be giving in a moment, that you will use the gifts that are giving to, to, to bring glory to your name, to further your kingdom. Those that will be remembering your sacrifice via communion, that you will just uh, help them to understand the weight and the gravity of what you did for us on our behalf. And God, pray over all of us as we stand and we worship you here in this moment. May it be a pleasing aroma here in this house this morning. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.